this here. Um, okay, so we were just talking about Hebrew alphabet for a second, that the y and the j sound. Um, and a couple of people have asked me about this in our, our times together, so I thought we'll just, this has nothing to do with Isaiah. This has to do with uh, the, the names of God and the name of God and pronunciation of the name of God as you come across it in, in your Bibles. So um, when you just, I don't know, go to Isaiah 1, we'll find God's name <laughs> pretty quickly. So look at, uh, look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. And you see, uh, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So you see, what do you notice about the word Lord there that's somewhat unique in your, in your translations? Yeah, so it's all capped. So what's uh, that? And, and that's different. When you see that in the Old Testament here, so we're going to call this your, your OT translations. In the Old Testament, the difference between all capital letters Lord and lower capital letters Lord, that's an important difference. The translators are trying to tell you something by that difference between those two. And so uh, the Hebrew word behind all the all caps is the actual divine name, uh, Yahweh. Whereas the, the Hebrew word for Lord is the word Adonai, which, which is used of God describing him as the Lord, but it's also used of just people in general people who are masters or employers or heads of household or something like that, like that, they are also called Adonai. So no human is ever called Yahweh. That's, that's Yahweh. It's his personal covenant name that he revealed to, to Moses at the burning bush and that whole story right there. Um, but then Yahweh is sometimes called by a title, Master Adonai, and that can be applied to, to lots of different folks. So here's... So anyway, so that's just one piece of it there. Now, it, it gets more interesting, of course. So the word Yahweh, um, in most, in many, particularly in the English and German tradition, the Y, that Y in the language, how you pronounce it, got changed into a J. So uh, why don't you, let's see. Oh, yeah, this is tricky. So you would do it this way if you're spelling the letters, ja. And then, actually, something similar happens with the letter W. In English, our letter W, many, especially Semitic Eastern languages, don't have a... Uh, the, they, have a they have a W, but they don't have uh, our letter uh, V. So in many languages, V... The v sound is the same as w. And you can kind of do it with your lips again. V, w, v, w. Your mouth is kind of doing the same thing. So my, uh, my wife's, her best friend in college, and, and one of her best friends uh, still today, she's a Persian. She grew up in Tehran, in Iran. And her family fled to Europe uh, during the regime change in the, in the 1980s and so on, or late 1970s. And... Uh, so, in her, so her name was Goliath, her college roommate off of college. And so Goliath learned English when she was uh, 
around 10 or 11. And so you wouldn't know it anymore, but there are certain things that come out where you can tell that English is a second language for her. And this is one of them, how she says V's. So she, so <laughs> she, uh, they would need to like clean up the apartment or something like that. And Goliath would always talk about the vacuum, <laughs> vacuuming, vacuuming, and so on, you know? Or the, uh, you know, she would always say wine for vine, which was then funny because it would be like, where does wine come from? Well, wine comes from the wine, you know? Kind of thing. So, anyway, so V and W. So, um, there's an interesting change here, both in English and, and passed in the German tradition, that wa of Yahweh uh, got put into a V. And what you end up with is Jave. Jave. Okay, so this is a little bit of a rabbit hole and a tangent, but this is kind of interesting. So, uh, early on, actually before Jesus' time, about 200 years or so, best we can tell from manuscripts and so on, um, uh, Jewish communities stopped pronouncing aloud the name Yahweh when they came across it in the Bible. And out of reverence for not wanting to defile or misuse the name, um, when they saw Yahweh in the Bibles, in their, in their Hebrew texts as they're reading along, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would say the word Adonai instead because that's an appropriate word to call Yahweh, Latin master. And so, uh, as, and so this was even like, it still exists here today. When I, when I was in the Hebrew Bible department at University of Wisconsin, when we would read text aloud, which we would often do in class and so on, you, it was inappropriate. It would have been offensive to any of the uh, Jewish people in the room to say Yahweh. So you just say Adonai out of respect for that, for that long-standing tradition. So something happened over time, uh, which is interesting, is that, uh, so these are the, the consonants of the divine name. And sometimes uh, it's not even, in Jewish tradition, it's not even spelled, just the consonants are given. And out of respect for this tradition, um, in Germany, in like the 1600s, when Hebrew texts began to be translated in Germany, they did uh, something between Yahweh, these consonants, Yahweh, and what they did was they took the consonants, but they used the vowels of Adonai in the word. So, uh, and thus, that's where the phrase Jehovah came from. So Jehovah is not a real word. Jehovah is like Brangelina. <laughs> it's taking two different names. You guys, so Brangelina. Yeah. It's taking two different names and merging them together into a hybrid name to refer to a concept now. Um, so what's funny is that Jehovah has gone on in some religious traditions that you know of to be taken as like that's what we call God by his name. But no one ever called Yahweh Jehovah ever, ever, until a couple hundred years ago in this hybrid taking the vowels of Adonai and the name of Jehovah. So anyway, that's just kind of interesting historical fact that Jehovah is actually not a real word or a real name. It's the vowels of Adonai and the consonants of the divine name mishmashed together. So it's the Yahweh witnesses, really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yah Yahweh witnesses. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, I suppose it's Je Jehovah's witnesses. So anyway, so that's just an interesting... There you go. So the d divine name. So this gets even more... 
tricky, if you can imagine, <laughs> uh, because then in the New Testament, which is not Hebrew, but what language? Greek. Okay. So uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus, uh, there was a Jewish community in Egypt, in northern Egypt, the city of Alexandria. And after Alexander the Great swept through about 300 years before Jesus, Greek became the, the spoken language of kind of the everyday world. And so you begin to have Jewish communities in that part of the world who all of a sudden, they don't, they're not growing up learning Hebrew anymore. They're not speaking Hebrew. They're growing up learning Greek or Aramaic, which became much more common by then. And so there was an in initiative about 200 years before Jesus, a group of uh, Jewish scholars in Egypt translated the entire Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Um, and that translation is called the Septuagint. Um, so here's what's interesting. So every time they came across uh, the word Yahweh in the Hebrew text and, trans and had to put that into Greek, what did they do? So in, in uh, we'll call this the Septuagint. When they came across Yahweh in Greek, they translated it into the word kurios which is the word for Lord or Master. Um, so, then when you get into the New Testament, and you, uh, actually, so this will be a good example. Um, go now to uh, Mark chapter 1 with me. We've already looked at this once before, but... <clears throat> So Mark begins uh, with a long quotation from uh, what chapter of Isaiah, as you look and see there. Yeah, it's a quotation from chapter 40. So I'll send my messenger ahead of you, prepare the way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So again, remember, in, it's only in the Old Testament that you're going to find the all caps, Lord, meaning Yahweh, because it's a Hebrew name. Um, so in Greek, you actually know the Greek word that's underneath this quotation of Isaiah 40 here. It's the word kurios, kurios. Um, but in the New Testament, as you go on and read through the gospel, if John the Baptist is the voice preparing the way for the Lord, who is the Lord in the gospel of Mark? Jesus, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so this is another way of, essentially, Jesus is being equated. And you go back to read Isaiah 40 in the Old Testament, and you will find that the word Lord in Isaiah 40 is in all caps. It's Yahweh. Prepare the way for Yahweh. And so underneath this quotation of Isaiah 40 is a whole theology of Jesus' identity. Namely, that he is, he is Yahweh, come among his people. Um, so again, this is just, it whole, and this happens all the time. When the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, they translate it into Greek. And they always use kurios. And then Jesus is the one whom they call kurios all the time. He's the Lord. And so every time Jesus is called Lord, actually, in the New Testament, there, underneath that is a claim that Jesus is being identified as Yahweh from the Old, from the Old Testament. So 
So, and I kind of mentioned this last week. So explicit claims where Jesus says, you know, I and the Father are one. Explicit, explicit claims of Jesus uh, to be God, become human, and so on. There's, there's a handful of them in the New Testament, but there's not that many, actually. Um, much more common is just this assumption that's built into every time they call Jesus Lord, is that he is Yahweh. Uh, and that's everywhere in the New Testament. So anyway, that's just fun with the divine, divine name. Yeah, it's, it's the same as this word right here, just master or lord. So yeah, it could refer to anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it was the generic word. But then it got used in the Jewish tradition to refer also specifically to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that's uh, mostly how the New Testament authors use it. Where it's kind of it's kind of has both senses. So. Curiosity, how did uh, in school, the Jews that were in the class with you, how did they respond to that, seeing now that the New Testament mm. referring to Jesus as Yahweh? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's not, they just, uh, it depends on what kind of tradition they're a part of, you know. It's sort of like saying, what do Christians believe about this, that, or the other thing? Well, which kind of Christians? You know, Catholics, Lutherans? Protestants and what kind of Protestants? Evangelicals, you know. So there's the same diversity within Judaism as well. So actually, you know, the, the vast majority of the world's Jews are are secular, atheists, agnostics, just like most of Western <laughs> Western culture. Um, yeah, totally. But then there are there is a, a I would say a large minority who would be the equivalent of. Uh, Orthodox evangelicals within Christianity, and they're called Orthodox within Judaism, and so they believe that, like we do, that the scriptures are divine and human, and that they're still waiting for the Messiah. So there, we'll talk about this a lot today when we read the servant passages. But their main, the main thing is not yes, they're equating Jesus with Yahweh, and yes, that claim is made in the New Testament, but they disagree because Jesus can't have been the divine savior because he died. He was crucified. And a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. And uh, so that takes him out of the running, essentially. Because there were other Messiahs who came along before and after Jesus, and they and some of them were crucified too. Uh, but none of them spawned a movement, and none of them spawned a movement that claimed that he was alive from the dead, <laughs> that therefore, and that therefore he was the Messiah. But anyway, so we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we're getting into Isaiah 53 already. So. Uh, okay, so let's kind of catch up to where, to where we were. We're going to, um, I'm going to just kind of do a recap here, and we're going to start in Isaiah 48 and just hit some passages, uh, the servant passages, and then, uh, well, we'll see. Um, these, are, these are, I think, some of the most exciting chapters in the book of Isaiah. So I think the whole book's exciting, but. So, you recall our first main block of Isaiah that we kind of worked through. I mean, it's very broad, and there's a lot of diversity in here, but chapters 1 through 39. And uh, remember the last words of chapter 39 that we read last week. It's a conversation that Isaiah has with King Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah brought in the leaders of Babylon and showed showed them everything that was in the temple and so on. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah, 
you know, great, way to go. You know? uh, these are going to become your enemies, and in fact, this is, Babylon's going to be the kingdom that's going to uh, actually loot and empty the temple and take all your uh, people off to exile in Babylon. And so we have this big kind of uh, demarcation right here that, uh, of the exile. And so all through chapters 1 through 39, we had Isaiah announcing that there is going to be a judgment on uh, Israel and the nations for sin, rebellion, for breaking the covenant. But then after the judgment would be what? What's on the other side of judgment? Isaiah's vision. Yeah, so we could use salvation as the big word here. And you'll recall salvation has a huge kaleidoscope of ideas and images connected to it. So the coming of the Messiah to uh, set up the kingdom again in Jerusalem, the ingathering of all of the nations who come and learn from the Torah are under the Messiah's rule. There's eras of peace and harmony. Remember chapter 11, the creation itself is transformed. You have ravenous lions you know, laying down with little lamby, this kind of thing. So creation is transformed. All these very powerful images for salvation, and not just for Israel, but also for the nations. And so uh, the big thing that happens is that the exile, especially the Babylonian exile, uh, is seen as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies of judgment. And so when we opened up to Isaiah 40, specifically chapter 40, what are the first words of Isaiah 40? Are they judgment or salvation? Yeah, they were salvation. So the, the first words of Isaiah 40 announce that there is comfort, comfort for my people, for Israel has paid for their, their sins, have been dealt with in the judgment, uh, and now is the time of salvation, or at least future. On its way is the, the announcement of salvation, uh, which includes the whole package. You know, Messiah, uh, Yahweh coming in his kingdom, and so on. That's Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Um, the next piece, then, for Isaiah 40, in terms of these latter chapters of Isaiah. So we know that salvation is coming. Here, let me keep going here. And wrapped up with the idea of salvation uh, is the question, uh, who among Israel and the nations are going to experience that salvation? And in chapter 40, Isaiah 40, let's, let's, all, let's all go there. There was one key image here in verse four, chapter 40, verse 27. And God is saying the judgment has taken place. Salvation is coming and on its way. But in verse 27, we came across this complaint, you may recall, of Israel. And what do they think about, what, what time do they think it is? <laughs> Where do they think God is in this whole mix here? The prophet says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, and say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause, or the justice do me, some of your translations have, my justice is disregarded by my God. So the prophet is coming and he's saying, the time of salvation, it's, uh, it's imminent. His judgment is now passed. But you have some Israelites who are saying, no, actually Yahweh has completely abandoned us. 
uh, he's, he hasn't done right by us. Um, the exile was, must have been Yahweh like leaving us out to dry, and he must hate us or not care about us anymore. And so the whole message of Isaiah 40 was, I'm sorry, do you think God's asleep? Do you realize God doesn't sleep? You know, he's God. Uh, do you think he's like your idols that might tip over? You know, if you don't nail them to the ground, are you kidding me? And so that, again, that was what we traced last week in these chapters from Isaiah 40. So you have this, these hints here that even after the judgment, Israel is not uh, responding rightly. They're not paying attention to what, to what Yahweh is up to. And so that, uh, that gets culminated for us in one of these chapters. Let me go to chapter 42 uh, with me. <clears throat> Uh, verse 18. So uh, the prophet calls out and he says, Hear or listen, you who are deaf, and look, you who are blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant? Who is deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me? Who is blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you haven't paid attention. Your ears are open, but you're not hearing anything. So the prophets, he's, uh, who's the servant of the Lord? In these chapters. So like, put, put your thumb here and go back to chapter 41, uh, verse 8. Mm-hmm. But you, chapter 41, verse 8, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendants of Abraham, my friend, uh, I took you from the ends of the earth, the farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. But uh, is Israel being a very good servant? I guess, in these, according to these chapters in 43. They're, they're blind and they're deaf. So, again, you get this idea here that the prophet's trying to announce that judgment is past, salvation is here, but Israel is not responding positively. They, they can't see it. They think Yahweh's abandoned them. They think Yahweh's ignored them. Um, or here, the prophet just says, you're, you're seeing all this stuff happening around you, the fulfillment of prophecy, and you're not putting things together. You don't, you don't believe. You're blind and you're deaf. Now, here's what's interesting here. Um, does anyone remember from these chapters um, where images of Israel becoming blind and deaf or seeing but not understanding, hearing but not grasping? Does that ring a bell, anybody? Remember what chapter that was? It was a key chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. So put your thumb here and go back to Isaiah 6. <clears throat> So we come back to Isaiah 6 almost every week now. This is a key chapter for understanding the storyline of the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah's commissioned to go to the people. Well, first he has a vision of God that, like, makes him soil his pants nearly, you know? I mean, he's just completely freaked out because of his own sin and corruption and the sin that he knows are among the people. And so his, his sins are atoned for by this 
searing coal on his lips. It does not sound like fun. But after he's purified from sin, he's sent to the people. And so, God says in chapter 6, verse 9, Go tell this people, keep on hearing, but never understanding. Keep on seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In other words, Isaiah's already been announcing all of this judgment, and Israel has rejected him. They're, they're too entrenched in their sin and selfishness. And so now Isaiah's words are, are going to be, uh, they're going to have the opposite effect. Which is it's sort of like any, you know, if you even just think about the way the gospel mysteriously works on people. For some people whose hearts are soft, when we hear the gospel, it does, starts messing with you. You know, it starts doing stuff to you. And then there are some people who, for where they're at in life, it has the exact opposite effect. It, it makes them angry that someone would confront their sin and brokenness. And so it actually hardens them against God. And so that's kind of what's happening here with Isaiah. That Israel uh, is no longer soft. And so the message about judgment and repent and turn to Yahweh and he'll forgive, that's actually going to seal Israel in their, in their disobedience so, so that they won't be healed. And remember verse 11, Isaiah asked a perfectly good question then. What did he ask? Yeah, how long? Like when are their hearts going to become soft again? When will salvation come? And Yahweh's answer, well, there's going to be a great judgment and a great uh, destruction. Cities lie ruined and so on. Um, everyone will be sent out of the land. But then you remember we had this image here in verse 13. This will be key for the latter chapters of Isaiah. It'll be like... Uh, There'll be a tenth remaining in the land. It'll be laid waste. It'll be like a terebinth or oak that leaves a stump, like Israel's cut down to a stump. But then what's going to sprout up out of the stump? <laughs> the holy seed. The holy seed. <clears throat> so this is going to be a big question here. Of, uh, let me see how I, can, how I can draw this. So we have this question of the servant... Or the seed from Isaiah 6. And the key question is who? After the judgment has come, who are going to be the ones who tune in to everything that just happened and see that the Babylonian exile was a judgment on Israel's sin and that now Yahweh is offering salvation and restoration and forgiveness of sins? Who are going to be the ones who actually recognize and, and see? They were blind and deaf, but there is going to come a time when they're not blind to death. They're going to understand what Yahweh has been up to all along, because his whole goal is to bring salvation and bring the Messiah. But in this passage right here, sorry, back to Isaiah 43, who is blind and who's deaf? But my servant, Israel. So it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. So mysteriously, I know we're hopping all over, but I'm trying to paint the big picture here. In chapter 42, we were introduced to another figure. So we can say it this way. The servant is, Israel is called the servant, but are they, act, are they being a good servant? 
Are they actually obeying and fulfilling the commission Yahweh has for them? No. So you read these chapters, and Israel is called servants, but they are not acting like the servants. And so in chapter 42, we're introduced to somebody called the servant. And this is the key passage. This will launch us into what we're going to do today. So we're announced to another servant, or at least to somebody who's called the servant. It's not clear to us yet. It says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Again, let's pause here real quick. So can you think of another figure in the book of Isaiah who is called to bring justice to the nations and who is empowered by the spirit of Yahweh? So the Messiah. Remember the chapter? Anybody? Uh, uh, Good, good. So... Chapter 2 and 11, you have justice going out to all the nations in chapter 2, but there it's Yahweh arbitrating and bringing justice to the nations. In chapter 11, it's a poem about the messianic king empowered by the spirit to bring justice to the nations. So who's going to bring justice to the nations, Yahweh or the Messiah? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, right? So Kyrios or Yahweh? Exactly. Exactly. So again, it's that blurring, that meshing of the Messiah with Yahweh. The Messiah will come and do and be what Yahweh says he will come and do and be. And it's this blurring of the lines between the two. So this is, we're introduced to another another figure then. And I think we're given little clues here that this uh, the servant here is not Israel who's blind and deaf but is in fact the messianic king who will come and do what Israel was unable to do and be what Israel was unable to be because of their hard hearts. Let's keep keep going here. Uh, Chapter 42, we just read verse 1. So chapter 42, verse 2. He will not shout or cry out. He won't raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So these are poetic images here. We we worked through this passage last week. Uh, He's gentle. He's not like this aggressive rock'em, sock'em bull in a china shop. He's gentle. He's he's sensitive uh, to what's happening around him, and he responds rightly to the people around him. In faithfulness, he will bring forth Justice. Notice that's two times now he's mentioned he's going to bring justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And in his law, remember the Hebrew word for law? Torah, yeah. So uh, law in Hebrew is uh, the word uh, Torah. In his Torah, the islands will put their hope. Now the islands are just, it's a poetic way of talking about the furthest reaches, you know, the people living on distant islands, they're not Israelites. It's just another way of saying Gentiles, or non-Jewish people, the nations. So the servant's going to come, empowered by the Spirit. He's going to bring justice, and he's going to teach the Torah, and even Gentiles will put their hope, non-Jewish people will put their hope in what the servant is doing. 
So again, uh, this passage, we looked at it in Matthew chapter 11 or 12. It's quoted in full and describing Jesus' ministry of teaching, announcing the kingdom of God, and healing, healing the sick and the poor. And so you can see where this is heading here. But uh, the cat's not fully out of the bag yet. Here in chapter 42, we're kind of like, well, who is this? This isn't Israel, but this is some other servant figure. Okay, so that's recapping everything that we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Thoughts or questions up to this point? Mm-hmm. Singular. Yeah. So, so what happens in um, in verses five through? Uh, Let's see. Seven. Uh, God, so God introduces the servant. Here is my servant. And then God starts talking to the servant. Uh, I have called you in righteousness. I take hold of your hand. I'll keep you and make you a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. So this is Yahweh talking to the servant. Here is what I've commissioned you to do. So, and actually those, uh, look at verse 6. These were key, key phrases here about what the servant is to do. The servant is a covenant for the people and a light to the nations or the Gentiles. So, who, uh, in, in the book of Isaiah, who are the people? So Israel, the nation of Israel. And then obviously the nations are the nations. So again, this is kind of the big picture here. Yahweh's mission was to bring justice on Israel and the nations for their sin, for everything that screwed up about humanity. But his goal was to bring salvation to Israel and the nations. Uh, And the idea actually was, if you remember Genesis 12, Exodus 19, that Israel was called to be the kingdom of priests that would be Yahweh's blessing to the nation. And how did that work out? So it didn't. And so the Messiah, the servant, steps in here to fill the role that Israel was unable and incapable of fulfilling. And to still... Judgment was on Israel and the nations, then salvation is now going to come through the Messiah to Israel and the nations. So the servant will fulfill God's covenant promises to Israel, and he will also fulfill the mission of bringing light to the nations. And this phrase right here, light to the nations, um, is going to be the main metaphor that Isaiah uses, as we're going to see later on in the chapters about light coming to the world in darkness. That's the main image of salvation from the last chapters of Isaiah. So this is a really key text for unfolding what's, uh, what's happening in the rest of the book. So it's good. Good question, Mark. Anything else? I wonder what Isaiah thought about that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, you can see, you can see how... All, all of this, this isn't just dropping out of nowhere. In many ways, this is working out the storyline of the Bible. It's sort of like, if God's going to be faithful to his promises, we know a Messiah is coming, 
And we know that he wants to bless Israel and the nations, but Israel's incapable. And so this is kind of how the story has to go. You know, If God's going to be faithful, uh, he's going to have to fulfill his promises somehow. And uh, the only one left in Isaiah's imagination uh, who can possibly do this as he looks into the future is Yahweh doing it himself, but in and through the Messiah. And it's that blurring of the lines between those two. So, um, I mean, as we're going to see, the book is, is very, uh, it's poetic and it's hazy, but it's developing a very clear portrait um, so, so that when Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts talking and doing what he's doing, you know, people, he's hitting all of this. And it's sort of, I, I think of this as, um, well, I drew it up here last week. But what we're seeing in these chapters is uh, the developing of uh, what I call it, uh, it's a help wanted sign. And so, and then maybe like with a little website, you know, dot com. And then you go to the website, and it's a very detailed job description, you know, justice to the nations, you know, fulfilling the covenant with the people of Israel, somehow dealing with the sin, Israel's sin, and their brokenness, uh, being empowered by the Spirit, and healing Israel through the power of the Spirit. Like, all of this is just there in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus walks onto the scene, and it's just, uh, he's saying, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the one who's going to do all of these things. And... Uh, the way he did it was extremely controversial to people. Uh, but, but people were quite excited about him when he was doing it. Just not the leaders of Israel. But anyway, sorry. Let's well, move on. Well, kind of insight that the whole, like, nation thing was the left. Yeah, that's right. He had to yep. get even more. Yeah, he had to, he had to yeah, send them. Or at least he had to like, make it clear like at the end of Matthew. But you read Acts, and they just wanted to hang out in Jerusalem. Right. He actually had to Give send a persecution free. on the church to scatter them. Right. <laughs> they finally go to the Gentiles. So anyway, there you go. That's the whole, well, that's the book of Acts. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that is very, it's very interesting. Uh, okay, so, uh, let's, so what we have in Isaiah, what we just read here in chapter 42 are what are called... Um, the servant songs. And they're poems that are specifically focused on um, the identity and the mission of the servant, this, this servant here. So one of them we just saw right here. It's in chapter 42, 1 uh, through 6. The next one, and I'm, we're just going to hit hit the servant poems, uh, is in chapter 49. Why don't you go there with me? <clears throat> Now, there's all kinds of great stuff in between that we are not going to be able to cover, but that's kind of what the handouts are for, to help guide you through some of these other, other material. What's that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 got it. So, 
Um, remember, so yeah, this is very, the way Isaiah works, it's, it's this poetic, recurring, it's like a symphony. You heard the theme, the main phrase or whatever of the melody at the very beginning, and then it gets worked out poem after poem after poem, developing in new and different directions and so on. So in Isaiah 45, you have this very powerful scene of, uh, of all nations uh, coming together and acknowledging Yahweh as the one true God who has fulfilled his promises. And so, in essence, it's just another portrait of the image of salvation. So, um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, at the very last verse. Yeah. But in the Lord, all of the seed of Israel will be made righteous or found righteous. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, it's playing out this theme again. Who, well, who is the seed of Israel? Who are those? Because as I read other places, Israel seems to be blind and deaf and not acknowledging. But uh, there is a Sha'ar. There's a remnant, um, and they're going to be revealed to us in chapter 53. So you've got to keep waiting. Isaiah is all about patience and reading it like a hundred times over the next 40 years, and you begin to put it together or whatever. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, so chapter 49. So we'll hit on, we'll hit on some of those things here in, in a moment. <clears throat> So in chapter 49 uh, is another one of these servant songs. And in these songs, really, all the themes of Isaiah get, kind of get packed into a, a real small place here. Uh, listen, it's the servant speaking to us. He says, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, Yahweh, all caps there, Yahweh called me from my birth. He's made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. It's great poetry here. What are these images talking about here? We're just kind of, just imagine, use them. Like a warrior. Mm -hmm. He's like a warrior. He, or he's actually, he's like a weapon. Yahweh is like a warrior, planning and strategizing, and he has a secret weapon, right? A little polished arrow. They don't have, like, sniper rifles. <laughs> so a polished, fine little arrow hidden in Yahweh's quiver, and he's been planning this for a long time, right? Because he, he's, even before the servant is born, the, his calling is, is all part of Yahweh's plan there. Do you see this here? So this is this image here. This servant coming to do this, there's no surprise to Yahweh. It may be news to Israel, but it's a long part of the plan. It's Yahweh's silver bullet to deal with the problems here. Uh, let's see. He said to me, quoting Yahweh, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I display whom I will display my splendor. Now, this is a, this is a disputed passage for a number of different reasons there uh, that you can maybe start to put together here. You are my servant, 
Israel. Um, on your handout, I have a little paragraph I wrote about the three main interpretations of this phrase right here. So we won't read through that, but you can, you can actually take this in, in at least two di very, very, very different ways. So one would be, in earlier chapters, who is called explicitly identified as the servant, like in chapter 41 that we read. Israel, like the nation, the people as a whole. But then we read chapter 42, and it seems to be somebody who's not like the nation. It seems to be somebody who's more like the Messiah. And so the question here is, is this, uh, once again, it's the nation uh, identified as the servant? Or is this the Messiah taking on the name and role of the nation? Do you see the difference between those two? So, and I think, as we're going to see in a second here, is unmistakably what the poem is trying to tell us is the second one. That the Messiah is being named Israel here. Because he is fulfilling the task that Israel was called to do, but failed. Because they're blind and, and deaf and, and hard of heart. That, does that make sense? So you could almost say, you are my servant. You know, like a paraphrase would be, you are Israel, in quote marks. I think that kind of gets the idea across here. And underneath this, Really, this is, uh, when you read Paul's letters, for example, and Paul talks about how Jesus fulfilled the Torah, or he bore in himself the covenant curses of the Torah, like he says in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. Um, he has this idea here. Israel couldn't obey the Torah. The Torah actually exposed the brokenness in their heart and led them to judgment. And so the Messiah, Jesus, comes... And he obeys the Torah in a way that Israel never could. And yet he takes the covenant curses of the Torah into himself on the cross and then becomes light and salvation to Israel and all of the nations. So this is the idea here. Jesus takes on the role of Israel and fulfills what Israel could, could never do. Thoughts or questions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah, you could say it, it fulfilled Yahweh's promises in a way that was surprising, but also in a way that was the only possible way. And again, this just gets us into the whole, what's the whole storyline of the Bible about? God wants his image-bearing humans to steward and care for his world and make it into a garden. I mean, that's Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we're hopelessly compromised because of sin. And so the whole storyline of the Bible is, how is he going to use humans to save humanity? <laughs> and he can't. And so he calls one family to do it, through whom blessing and salvation will go to the nations, and they're just as broken and screwed up as everybody else. And so now Yahweh has two problems on his hand. He has a broken humanity and a sinful, broken Israel. <clears throat> and so, the, the I mean... The way the gospel is according to the scriptures, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, is the Messiah comes and does what Israel 
was, was called to do. He fulfills the purpose of Israel uh, and also bears the sin of the world in himself at the same time. So it's, this is big. We're kind of floating 30,000 feet over the storyline of the whole Bible in just these couple verses right here, if that makes any sense. So anyway, so this is very helpful for me because it's sort of like, oh, all of it begins to fit together. And the weird poetry, I don't know, our tendency might be to just read right over these, oh, servant Israel, okay, whatever. I like John 3.16. And we just kind of, you know, but it's actually very profound what's happening here. Um, Anyhow, all right, let's keep going. The passage gets better. Um, Verse 4, this is the introduction of a theme here that's that's going to play out. So with the servants talking to us, Yahweh said, I am, you are my servant, Israel. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. So here the servant is expressing some frustration. The servant has been sent on this mission, but it seems like it's not being effective. Uh, He's been laboring and working, but it seems like for no purpose. What does that mean? So so again, what's always the answer in Isaiah? Keep reading, keep reading, okay? We have this theme here, but is the servant abandoning his commission? He says, no. He says, I know my reward is with Yahweh. Yahweh will fulfill his promise of what he's called me to do. So keep going. But it seems like this is not working. The mission of the servant uh, is, not, is not working. What is the mission of the servant? Verse 5. And now the Lord says, The one who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel back to himself. So this is one part of the servant's mission. So let's even, let's kind of unpack that here. What's the servant's mission? According to uh, verse 5. Yeah, to restore Israel to Yahweh. Now that's kind of a, what is, to restore him or to bring back or to gather Israel back. Um, so in the prophets, say like Isaiah is sent to Israel to do what? By announcing judgment and salvation. For them to hope that Israel will repent and return to Yahweh, to restore Israel to Yahweh. So one of the servant's mission is to uh, announce that Israel needs to come back and return to Yahweh and trust in his purposes and so on. Isn't the statement itself Alone, that the servant is one yeah. individual and not the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does the nation? Yeah. As a whole, bring. Yeah. This is a. Uh, this is a. In my mind, this is kind of the nail in the coffin for uh, interpretation number one here. That Israel or that the servant is the nation of Israel. Because here, the whole point is that the nation is estranged from Yahweh and disobedient. And so someone needs to come call the nation back to Yahweh. And that person is called the, the servant. 
And in chapter 42, the servant was connected with the individual Messiah of chapter 11. So yeah, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. So that's one part of the servant's mission, restore Israel to Yahweh. Uh, what's the, uh, the, second, the second one, verse 6? He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. So yes, that's one part of the mission, but that's not, it's actually a very small part. It's only one piece of the pie. What's the larger vision of the, of the servant's mission here? I will also make you, what? A light for the Gentiles. So this is exactly, this is a quotation of the phrase, the same phrase from chapter 42. A covenant for the people, a light to the Gentiles. Light to the nations or Gentiles. Keep, keep reading, because it's more interesting. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And the Lord says this to the one who is despised and abhorred by the nation. Huh? So the servant is sent on a mission to the nation, Israel. But you remember the servant said... It's like I'm laboring and working, but it's to no purpose. It's, in, it's not working. Something, and here that's played out a little more. That's because uh, the servant, in his mission to restore Israel to Yahweh, he's going to be rejected and despised and abhorred by the nations. People are not going to accept his message. Hmm. So it's kind of, notice the ups and downs here. It's like light to the nations, restore Israel, yay, yay, yay. But he's going to be rejected and despised and abhorred. Whoa, it's a very dark, dark image here. Kings will see you and will arise. Princes will see you and bow down because the Lord of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So wait, is he going to be despised and rejected? Or is he going to be uh, worshipped and bowed down to? So yeah, so again, this is just good poetry. It's just throwing all of this at you here, and you just kind of have to take it and put it into this growing growing portrait here. Uh, keep reading. This is what the Lord says. In the time of favor, I will answer you. God's still talking to the servant here. In the day of salvation, I will help you. When the servant is despised and rejected, God is going to deliver and save the servant. I will keep you, and I will make you to be... Hmm? A covenant for the people. So where have we seen that before? So right here in, in chapter 42. So this whole servant poem, uh, it, it goes from verses 1 through, what was that verse that we just read? 1 through 8, and really it kind of keeps going through, through verse 9. But uh, So you get this dual mission here. The servant is going to bring justice to the nations, be a light to the nations going to be a covenant for the people of Israel, restore, you know, fulfill the covenant purposes, but the new, brand new theme was introduced in this poem, 49. The servant is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the very people to whom he is sent. And so that raises a question then, well, if he's rejected, doesn't that mean that he's going, it's failed? 
But the servant said, no, my reward is with God. He will vindicate me. He will answer me in the, in the day of salvation. So the servant's going to fail and be rejected, but yet that failure is going to be the working out of God's salvation. Here, Do you see how this is all coming together here? This is awesome. I think it's awesome. So, okay. Uh, go to chapter 50. It's the next, the next servant song here. Uh, it's in verses 4 through 9. And this one, this poem almost entirely develops this whole theme of the servant being rejected and suffering. Verse 4. And again, it's the servant speaking. So the so sovereign Yahweh, he's given me an instructed tongue. Any other translations? A tongue of the learned? A learned tongue? Yeah, that's great. That's great. A tongue of those who are taught. Yep, that's good. Yeah, exactly. So he's, uh, he's, he has great wisdom. We'll see how this plays out here. He's given me a, a tongue of wisdom or instruction to know the word that will sustain the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one who is being so, in other words, the servant has ears that are clear and can listen, whereas the nation of Israel has what kind of ears? Deaf ears. So he's he's being the servant is being contrasted with deaf, blind Israel that can't see and hear what Yahweh's doing. But he says, "I I have open ears." Sovereign Yahweh, He opened my ears. I have not been rebellious like is like the nation has been rebellious, and I'm being obedient. I have not drawn back. I offer my back to those who beat me. I offer my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I do not hide my face from mocking or spitting, because sovereign Yahweh helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, like stone. He's made his, he's purposed what he's going to do like, like he's chiseled it in stone. Can't be reversed. I'm set on this course. And I know that I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near. Who, who, who's going to vindicate the servant even when he's like being rejected and beaten and so on? Who's the servant's hope? So, so Yahweh, Yahweh. <clears throat> So if the one who vindicates me is near, who then can bring charges against me? Do you hear Romans 8 in the background? Anyone? If God is for us, who then can be against us? So what Paul's doing in that page is he's borrowing the, the, the language and imagery right here from the servant's confidence in Yahweh. If Yahweh is for me, then they can kill me. It doesn't matter. Let us face each other. Who's my accuser? Come on, confront me. So this is like Romans 8. It's sovereign Yahweh who helps me. Who is the one that will condemn me? They, people who are trying to condemn me, they'll all wear out like a garment and moths will eat them up. <laughs> Such a good image here. So has anyone ever had moth, moth holes? Like moth? Destroy anything in your closet? Yeah. So it's like that. So people who think that they're here to stay and they're the ones that have the power, actually they'll fade away like a little moth-eaten garment. But Yahweh is the one who vindicates me. 
So this whole, this whole poem right here is playing out this new theme. The servant is going to be rejected and despised as he comes to try to restore Israel to Yahweh. But that will not defeat the purposes of Yahweh. Somehow, uh, this is all part of the plan. And so the servant... So, so two things are going on here. And one, this, this is, whenever I read this passage, it always kind of sparks me. So when I was talking about the help wanted sign, I mean, I, this is all sanctified imagination and so on. But uh, Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer through the night, a lot of time. Uh, and he quoted from the book of Isaiah all the time, too. And so almost certainly... He spent an incredible amount of time in prayer, meditating on the book of Isaiah, because you read these chapters and you just see this blaring help wanted sign. And it's obvious that Jesus believed that he was the one in whom all of this would come to its completion. And so, you know, I just, you know, you don't know, but I, I, you have to wonder if in like, in the passion, you know, he's under the lash. These are the words that are in his mind here. You know, who's, they're, pull, they're beating me, pulling out my beard, but sovereign Yahweh helps me, I will not be disgraced. You know, like what, what, Jesus was human. He was fully human, you know, and he prayed the night before, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, you know. So what, what, what sustained his obedience? And you can't just play the he's God card, because he's fully human too. And so, uh, I have to imagine that these are, these are passages that gave him comfort and assurance. And I think that's why Paul picks up the language in Romans 8 that uh, we saw here. And it's the same idea here, that uh, it's these passages of Scripture that sustain us in times when all reality seems to tell us that actually God's plan is falling apart and he's abandoned us and it's not working out. And it's, precise, it's actually the opposite. This may be the very working out of God's plan that it looks like everything falls apart. <laughs> anyway, isn't this a powerful passage? It's really, really incredible. Okay, this, this gets even more interesting here. Verses 10 and 11 introduce a, a new theme. The prophet says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys or listens to the word of the servant? So who's out there among you who's going to pay attention to what Yahweh's doing through the servant and who fear the Lord. Let the one who walks in the dark and has no light, let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. So someone's being summoned here, uh, and presumably among Israel, to pay attention to what God is going to do through the servant and to trust in Yahweh, that somehow Yahweh is working out his plans and his purposes. But, all of you who light your own fires, so the image is you're walking in the dark here, and you don't have any light, listening to what, and paying attention to what's happening with the servant, that will be your comfort and guidance when you're walking in the darkness. But then there's all these other people who go and have bought like cheap flashlights at Walgreens. <laughs> And because they're like, well, I'm not going to sit around and wait for Yahweh to provide the light. I'm going to go get my own light. That's the, that's the idea here. All of you who light your own fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go on, 
walk in the light of your own fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you'll receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Whoa. Okay, that's kind of harsh here. So, but whatever's happening here, it's this playing out of, uh, of this theme here, that uh, the servant is going to be rejected, but there are going to be some who fear the Lord and listen to the, and pay attention to the word of the servant. You see that there in verse 10? So there'll be some who, uh, right now we'll just call them those who obey. And then there'll be those who reject the servant. Because the, the role of the servant is to bring light into darkness. But then there are those who will not accept the servant's light, and they want to have their own light and go their own way. So you get this, uh, or you could just use kind of generic terms here. <laughs> you have the righteous and the wicked. Those who accept the servant and obey him, those who reject the servant and persecute him, kill him. So that's interesting. It's now the servant has servants, as it were, people who will listen to him. Okay, last, uh, last one, last servant poem, begins in chapter 2, 52, verse 13. This is one of those places where um, the chapter and verse numbers, uh, whoever was assigning them fell asleep at the wheel or something on this one. <laughs> Uh, because chapter 53 is actually occurring right in the middle of uh, the fourth servant poem. So it really begins at 52, uh, 13. But I want to read the, the passage uh, that comes before it. Uh, let's go to 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains... Are, those, are the feet of those who bring good news. Anybody? Is this familiar? Yeah, it's a classic passage. What's that? From, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, Paul quotes this passage. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, he sure does. Okay. Uh, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Now, if you stop and say, where have I heard words like this before? Um, and you go back to Isaiah 40, the first opening sentences of Isaiah 40, you find all of these language, all of this here. Yahweh's coming, he's returning to Zion, he's going to rule in Zion, he's going to rescue uh, and carry the sheep like a shepherd close to his heart. All of, uh, he's going to proclaim good news to Zion that Yahweh is returning. So, so we're coming back to this image of the opening words of Isaiah 40 here. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When Yahweh returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Remember, this is all part of the image of salvation here. Yahweh coming back to Zion. Burst into songs of joy. Together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has redeemed his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Verse 10 is great here. And this is a really important 
metaphor that's being introduced here. So Yahweh is coming back to Zion. He's restoring the ruins, fulfilling his promises of salvation. And then verse 10 comes along and says, he will lay bare his holy arm. So what the image here. So I pictured, you know, he's just rolling up his sleeves. You know what? He's showing off his guns. That's what we think of that, like a bodybuilder. like that. But the arm of Yahweh, the, the arm of Yahweh that comes in the sight of all nations. This is actually a, a phrase that comes from the book of Exodus. So there's a, a phrase when the Israelites talked about the redemption from slavery in Exodus. They talked about how Yahweh um, saved them with an outstretched arm. Do you know that phrase? An outstretched arm? <coughs> yeah, let me... I, I forgot to look one up here, but uh, we'll just do it here. Oh, oh, bad. Stop that. Go away. What happened? Uh, sorry, guys. I'm having a technology moment. Okay, good. Uh, let's see. I should know how to do this. Uh, seems like... My, my, do you see how it's kind of like off the screen there? I think... Uh, hmm. I'm not sure what to do. Here, when in doubt, when in doubt, search for Google, search on Google, yeah? Ah, good, all right, Exodus 6.6. 6. Isn't Google great sometimes? Except they're like big brother. Okay, uh, so say... This is uh, um, Moses talking to the people of Israel. Say to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring, deliver you from slavery to them. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's the image here. And so the outstretched arm of Yahweh is repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament as the, the way that Yahweh saved them and redeemed them. And so what Isaiah is doing here is he's saying... Uh, there's going to be another act of Yahweh's mighty arm before all of the nations. It's this act of salvation here. So the big question is, well, what is that? What is the mighty act of Yahweh's arm that will get the attention of all of the nations through which he's going to fulfill his promises to save and bring his kingdom and so on? Okay, go down to verse 13. Look, my servant will act wisely. Any other translations? What's that? Prudently. Prudently. Does anyone have prosper? prosper? Yeah, prosper. Okay, yeah. So this is just a good example of uh, the Hebrew word you used here has two different nuances of meaning, uh, and it could just mean either, one, in this context. And so different translations. And they kind of, I don't know, if you act wisely you often will prosper. But it kind of comes to the mouth of the same thing. But anyway, so there you go. He will prosper. He, the servant, will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
Just pause right there. The phrase, the Hebrew words that are used here are only used to describe one other figure in the Old Testament and in the book of Isaiah specifically. When you think of a time when Isaiah had a vision of somebody high and exalted and lifted up. So there's Yahweh in the temple. So again, it's one of these blurring of the lines here. So who's exalted, the Yahweh or the servant? Yes, so they're, they're, the servant is sent from Yahweh, but yet the servant also does things and has characteristics of Yahweh himself. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form was marred beyond human likeness here. So we're picking up this theme that was here in chapter 50 of the rejection and the beating and the suffering of the servant here. We're going to pick up that theme. This whole poem is about why, if the servant is supposed to be a light to the nations and the covenant people Israel, why is he being rejected? Doesn't that mean his, his mission has failed if he's rejected? Uh, verse 15. So he will something many nations. What do your translations have? Sprinkle, and then at least one of you has startle. Yep, okay. So this is, this is fascinating. When There are a number of passages in the Hebrew Bible, and they mostly have to do with Messianic prophecy, and there's usually lots of footnotes, and lots of... The Hebrew is very difficult to translate here. So for one reason or another, these passages um, attracted attention, uh, as they were passed down by the scribes. And uh, I think because they came to be so pondered and disputed and debated and so on in Israel's history, they just tend to, uh, to attract manuscript errors and different problems and difficulties and so on. And so this is kind of one of them. Um, who, so if, it, if it's to be translated sprinkled, it's an image of the priests. Because what do the priests do on the Day of Atonement with the blood of the animals? Yeah, they sprinkle it on the atonement cover so they cover over the sins of the people. So that could be what it means. Um, the word could lit- legitimately also be translated startled, which fits with what happened uh, with what follows. So he will startle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. So people will, s- people will hear about what happened with the servant and they'll, they'll be, you know, close their mouths. Oh. You know, it'll amaze them. It'll startle them, and so on. So, either way, those are the two two interpretations here. I think the second one is 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 correct, but I could be wrong. Uh, for why are they why are the nations going to be startled when they hear about the servant? Because what they have not been told, they will see. What they've never heard before, they will come to understand. Now, look at who's who's talking right there in verses thirteen and fourteen. Yeah, do you see that there? So, the servant is called what in verse 13? He's exalted. Um, or, yeah, sorry, he's called, he's called my servant. And so, in 52, 13, and 14, uh, it's Yahweh speaking about the servant. But in 53.1, as we go on, someone else starts talking. A, a we. 
we. And what do the we have to say about the servant? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right there, the arm of the Lord. Where have we heard about the arm of the Lord? Right, in, in the previous chapter. So what are, what are they saying here? The arm of the Lord has been revealed in what you're about to read and hear about. What is the great mighty act of salvation of Yahweh bearing his arm for all nations to see returning to Zion? It's, ha it's happened here in the servant. But uh, no one's believed it. You see that, right? Who's believed the message? The arm of the Lord has been revealed, and no, it's like no one believes it. The we, we believe it, but it seems like people around us haven't believed it. So who is that speaking? Uh, it's the we. <laughs> so uh, as we're going to see, I think it's this voice right here. It's the people who have come to believe and follow and obey the servant. And they believe, that, as we're going to see, they believe that uh, the death and rejection of the servant was not the servant's failure, but was actually the divine purpose all along. But no one believed, I mean, the reason the servant was rejected is because no one believed him. And therefore, this we speaking is like uh, this minority who understands what happened was God's purpose, but... They themselves, as we're going to see in the latter part of the book, the servants of the servant are also rejected. Could it be the prophets? The prophets who believed our message? Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, it, it, it definitely represents the prophets, but then those who obey uh, the word of the prophets and the servants. Mm -hmm. So, again, remember prophecy in the Bible, at its most basic, is God giving his divine true perspective on the course of human events. And so, let's just keep reading. This will, this will all become clear. So, what is the servant about here? Well, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Have we heard of somebody popping up like a root or a branch before? So, yeah, the king of Isaiah 11. From the stump of Israel, a new little shoot or branch from the line of David is going to sprout up. But he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He doesn't, he doesn't seem or act like a royal king sitting on a throne. He hangs out with poor people and sinners. All right. So you can see where I'm going here. But that's the idea here. He doesn't act. He doesn't seem like well, this is the royal divine king who's coming. So it doesn't seem like it. In reality, he was despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's familiar with suffering. He's like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely, he took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Now, I'm just curious here. Does anyone, uh, that first word in verse 4, any different translations? NIV has surely. Any other translations? Say that again. Oh, no, the, the first word. Just surely. Remember that line from the movie Airplane? Surely. Don't call me surely. Sorry. Okay, that's a bad joke. So that, um, 
that word surely, so what are we, this is 53.4, uh, gets translated surely, and I, I, it doesn't quite get what, uh, what the word is getting at. It's a word of, it, it's marking an extreme contrast. Um, I think a more helpful translation for what's happening here is in reality, or however. <clears throat> so the idea is, the servant comes, and he's despised and rejected by everyone. But in reality, what's happening is prophecy. So everyone looks around, and they see this guy who, who everyone hates and rejects and despises. But in reality, what's really happening for those who have eyes to see? He's actually, in his being rejected and suffering, he's taking on our infirmities, and he's carrying carrying our sorrows. You see, we all thought this guy was cursed by God. Because what kind of people end up on being crucified by the Romans? You know, what, what type of people? Criminals. People who are rejected by God. We thought he was stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. But in reality, how, what was really happening in that moment? He was being pierced for our transgressions. He was being crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us, what's the Hebrew word under peace? Shalom was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So verse 5, this is such a rich passage, you guys. (laughs) Um, Punishment that results in our shalom. Um, so when, Paul, when Paul talks about the idea of the cross being the place where Jesus takes the hit in our place, all of, all of that is born out of them seeing the events of the cross, <laughs> hearing Jesus unpack it, and reading Isaiah 53. In other words, Isaiah 53 provides the fertile ground from which the whole idea of the cross as a substitution human sin comes out of here. And most, actually most of the language where uh, the New Testament authors talk about Jesus dying in our place and so on, all of that, the wording, precise wording in Greek and Hebrew and so on, is all taken right out of these very sentences right here. So this is the birthing ground of our idea of the cross as the substitutionary death for, for hum, human sin. Um... So the punishment that brings us shalom was on him by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, but Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all. So do you see the we is almost like they're making this confession. We, like along with everybody else, thought this guy was a cursed by God criminal, rejected, no one paid attention to him. But this we has come to understand as they come to hear and obey the word of the servant that in reality this rejection of the servant was part of the divine purpose all along to bring about salvation for Israel and, and the nations. It keeps going. It explores it more. He, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before the shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression, 
and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? In other words, uh, he's a goner. Like, is this guy going to have any, any legacy come after him? Any movement of people or something follow this guy? He's, on a, he's being killed, for goodness sake. No way. He's a goner. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. That's another line where some of our translations might read differently. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the Lord's will that what happened? What do you have there? To, to, to crush him, or to bruise him, and to cause him to suffer. In other words, was this some accident that this all took place? No, this was at all was the part of the divine plan all along. That the one who comes to represent Israel should take Israel's sin into himself and and by representation all the world's sin into himself. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, and a guilt offering, you can go if you're so inclined, can go read about it in Leviticus in great detail. But the guilt offering is when one party wrongs another, how do you make restitution between two people when there's been one wrong to the other? You offer an asham, a guilt offering. And so somehow the servant's suffering plays the role of a guilt offering. And you're like, well, between whom? Between Yahweh, clearly, and... So you've been reading the book, well, Israel and the nations who stand under Yahweh's judgment. Okay, so let's stop with, that's what happened. He, he dies, his, his death was played the role of a guilt offering. But then what happens after that? What happens after he dies? What will he do? He will see his offspring. What? Wait, I thought he's dead. I thought he died. So somehow, after he dies, he will look upon or see his offspring. Um, so let's see, this is 53.10. So this is a word we've seen before. Uh, it's the word seed. It's the same word in Isaiah chapter 6. When the stump is cut down and it looks like everything's lost, there's a little boop, seed that sprouts up. And who's the seed? Is it the Messiah? Is it the remnant of the people or so on? And so somehow, on the other side of death, the servant is going to see those who come after him, his seed, which, which does not referring to like some conspiracy theory, Jesus had kids after all, or something like that. So no, that's not what's going on here. So this the seed. Who are those who are going to follow after the servant and carry on the work and the mission of the servant? The, after his death, the servant will see to those. Who, who are they? Well, keep, you got to keep reading. He will prolong his days after he dies. How does that work? I don't, I don't know. It's just very mysterious. The will of the Lord, which up in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. But after he dies, what is God's will? It, to, he'll prosper, prosper in his hand. After, after suffering, after the suffering of his soul, he will 
Hmm. <laughs> what do your translations have? This is another one. 53.11. He will see. And some of your translations have light and be satisfied. Others of your translations don't have the word light there, correct? Okay. So does anyone have a footnote there in your Bible? Yes. So here, essentially here's what happens. This is a passage where uh, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah, which I tried to show to you that one day, <laughs> so has a difference from a number of other manuscripts. And so the, old, the Greek Septuagint translation, that the Jews in Alexandria, when you read that passage in Greek, it says, he will see light. But in many other Hebrew texts, there was no word light there. And so for a long time, people were like, well, which is right? Like, did the Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, have a different Hebrew text, or is there been an error? And then, lo and behold, 1948, the Sea Scroll of Isaiah is found, and you read the passage, and it says, he will see light in Hebrew. Um, so likely what happened, for one reason or another, and it has to do with the spelling and the, and the shape of the letters and so on, but the word light got dropped out by error. And so on, the, so, on the other side of suffering, the servant is going to see light, which is an image in the Bible of, I mean, it's the second, third verse of the Bible, right? What God does to bring life out of the chaos and so on is let there be light. So light's an image of life and so on. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will do what? Fifty-three, oh, eleven. Mm -hmm. Justify many. Um, does anyone have a different translation? Yeah, to make righteous. <clears throat> so this, in other words, the idea is all Israel and humanity is guilty. Verse, verse 6, we have all gone astray, turned to our own way. But the death of the servant plays the role of a guilt offering in our stead. He's raised up uh, and sees the light of light. And by his knowledge and by this whole deal, the servant can now declare people who were guilty, declare them to be what? Righteous. Yeah, yeah. So again, all of the language of Paul, the apostle, what we call the doctrine of justification, which is a big deal in the letters of Paul. All of that is born out of uh, Paul reflecting on Isaiah 53. Through the death and resurrection of the servant, guilty people can be declared to be in the right now, in, in right standing with God. Um, and actually, there's a handful of things. Yeah, we're almost done. Do you want to turn to Romans with me real quick? There's a couple cool things. All right, keep your thumb here, but go to Romans with me. <clears throat> Uh, Romans chapter 5. Um, and we're down uh, here. Let's go to uh, verse, verse 14. 
verse, we have to do verse 12, sorry. So, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. What story in the Old Testament is he referring to here? He's referring to the story of, of Adam and Eve and the fall of humanity here. Through the disobedience of humanity, the first humans, and so on. For before the Torah, the law, was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. That's a whole other discussion. Sorry, we can't have that right now. <laughs> Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those over those who didn't sin by breaking a command, like Adam did. He, and Adam is a pattern of the one to come. But see, the gift of life through Jesus is not like the sin of Adam. For the many died by the trespass of the one man. The many. Where's the word many? Isaiah 53. The servant will do what to the many? He will justify the many. So Paul says, death came to the many. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to whom? To the many. So this, this idea of the many in Paul in Romans 5 comes right out of Isaiah 53. Uh, this, the servant is going to work on behalf of the many, uh, which is, is uh, in Isaiah, Israel and the nations all kind of put together here. So again, these are just little instances where Paul's language has been influenced and, and given to him by uh, the, book of, the book of Isaiah. Um, uh, keep going here. Go down to verse 18. Consequently, as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so the result of one act of righteousness was justification. It's the very word used in Isaiah. The declaring righteous that brings life for all men. Just as the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many are declared righteous. So again, all this is born out of his meditation on Isaiah 53 and, and then obviously the gospel and the rest of the Bible and so on. But uh, there's this idea of justification, people who are guilty are declared right, is all... <laughs> Uh, found in the, the seedbed of all of that is in this, this language right here in Isaiah 53. Uh, verse 12, it comes to a close. Therefore, I will give him, the servant, I'll give him a portion among the great. He'll divide the spoils with the strong. So instead of actually being a defeated victim, he will become the victor, you know, who, when you are a victor in a battle, you divide up the, the plunder, and so on, this image. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. So with uh, this poem right here, the servant song, uh, they, they come to a close, and, uh, well, I won't write it up here, you've got Isaiah 53 sitting in front of you, so... It's, uh, so all four of these come along. The servant is commissioned to Israel and the nations. 
but he's rejected by Israel. That's played out, developed even more. But then ultimately, it turns out that the rejection of the servant was the divine plan all along uh, to deal with Israel and the nation's sin. And so the big question that comes after these poems then is, who are the seed mentioned in the verse 10? Um, and we have a hint from the earlier servant poems that they're likely going to be those who obey and listen to the servant and not those who rejected him and light their own flashlights, but those who walk in the light of the servant. And so then the question that comes after this, and we'll take a break here, I know we've been powering, um, is what is the fate of the servants among Israel uh, if there are also those among Israel who reject the servant? How is that going to be worked out then? And where do the nations fit into it all in the salvation um, of the world, and so on. And so that's what the chapters that come afterwards are all going to play out here. Who's listening to the servant, who's not, and how will those two groups be dealt with uh, when God finally brings his, his salvation? How are you guys doing? Thoughts, questions? Yeah. Oh, uh, yes, but all all languages are like that. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, a good a example is our English word love. So, I mean, talk about an unhelpful word, right? So, I mean, I've talked about this before. You, I love pizza. I love my son. I love vacation. I love, you know, so those actually all have really different nuances of meaning depending on the context. And so that's just how language works. Words are inherently um, uh, have multiple ranges of meaning depending on the context you plug them into. And so, yeah, when you read dictionary entries, even in English, and you, the word love, and then it'll have like five different paragraphs. <laughs> and it's not that it has five different, what, it, sorry, it's not that it has one meaning that's mysteriously has all these meanings in it or something. No, it just has different meanings. Altogether, and so it's the same in Hebrew words. This is the tricky thing when, like, when, so you can tell I have a, I mean, I have a bias about this because I'm a Bible geek or whatever. But when when teachers of the Bible or whatever talk about the deep meanings of Hebrew words, and it means all of these, this word has three meanings that are all packed together, and so it's well, no, that, every language has that. Like, like words are used in lots of different ways. The same word can mean different things. And so sometimes, depending on the context, it just determines the meaning. So that's part of what's happening in those passages back here, where the translations differed, was it could potentially mean both, and the context doesn't help us. <laughs> and so we don't know how, what decision to make. Um, and that's why people write big, fat, 500-page commentaries on books of the Bible. It's because they're doing that level of detailed work about the meanings of words, exactly, and so on. So anyway, thoughts, response. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I know that's great. I mean, it's, 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 it's,
the best thing is, yeah, I never want to undermine confidence in our translations. They're excellent. They're excellent translations. But they are translations. So we just should recognize that. So I think, you know, and I don't think everybody in the body of Christ is called to learn Greek and Hebrew. Like, that would be a sad state of affairs. Because, <laughs> like, who would be out there with their friends talking about Jesus if we're all buried in books all the time? So, like, so, so no. So, it's the body of Christ. So, some people are, are that's their deal. But, uh, I think one of the best ways, actually, to help yourself become, a, you know, a better student of scriptures is actually to read multiple translations, or just, I really recommend to people, like, to change it up every year or something, pick a different one, and because there's nothing, some, and different translations are just doing different things, so the English Standard Version or the New American Standard, if you ever notice, it's very awkward English, because they're actually mapping every English word onto each individual Hebrew or Greek word as best they can. And so it's horrible English. It's English as no one speaks it. But that's because they're not trying to create a readable English translation. They're trying to represent the Greek and the Hebrew as closely as they can. Whereas the NIV is trying kind of like a middle road, and then on the other far end is something is like paraphrases, like the, Eugene Peterson's The Message or The Living Bible. And they're all great. They just have different goals. You know? And so... Uh, I love the Living Bible when I'm, especially when I'm in context teaching students, because the Bible's hard. Like, why make it harder by rendering it into horrible English? You know what I mean? So, so it's every translation just has a different purpose. So, uh, I I just encourage people to kind of mix it up or whatever. So I don't know if that's helpful, but especially when it comes to poetry, because poetry by its nature is is really dense language, and so it's hard to Bring, a, bring poetry fully across a language barrier. And so different translations will kind of help, help do that. Okay, sorry, that was a rabbit trail, but a good, but a good one. Any other thoughts or questions? So the commonly held uh, Jewish interpretation of the passage is that it's really consistently talking about the nation of Israel. What then is the vision here of going through about bearing the iniquities? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The uh, again, the the traditional view would be uh, rooted actually in the first oh the first words of Isaiah forty. Um, that the punishment of exile was the way that Israel paid for its sins or received from the Lord's hand uh, double for all her sins. And so uh, the suffering of Israel at the hands of foreign nations is that becomes the framework for all of this. Um, and that Israel was suffering on behalf of its own sins and that the exile was the guilt offering by which their sins were paid for. Um, so there were and again, it's sort of like, what do Christians believe about X or Y? What did, how do Jewish people read Isaiah 53? So there are Jewish messianic readings of Isaiah 53. Um, 
they just uh, don't think that Jesus of Nazareth was the one. So they expect someone else to do it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it didn't fit for a number of... So Isaiah 53 is really one of the only places where this suffering Messiah theme is brought out. Most of the other depictions of the desire of the Messiah, like here, are he's a rock'em, sock'em, kick out the bad guys, set up a kingdom Messiah. And so that was the dominant expectation. Um, and so Jesus came, and uh, he renounced violence entirely as part of his kingdom agenda. And that threw everybody for a loop because that's exactly what they were looking for was somebody that, to kick out the Romans. So we can't... It, it's, it's understandable why Jesus was rejected, but clearly he uh, s- s- put this together and most people were not putting this together in his day. Some were, but not very many. So this was... This vision right here was not the dominant viewpoint of the people of Israel. Politics got in the way. What's that? The politics of the age got in the way. Yeah, yeah, they sure did. Yeah, the politics and religion, like they do today, right? I mean, like they do in every age. It's all, it's all mixed together. Um, so, you know, it's sort of, and this is, this is a hindsight is 2020 thing, but uh, the resurrection itself is a pretty stupendous claim. And even though it's, Hinted at, I think, in Isaiah 53, uh, with the, him seeing light and, you know, prospering after he, he dies and so on. Um, the idea of the resurrection of the Messiah before everyone else is, the, that idea is completely novel to the, the proclamation of the gospel among the early Christians. The, the traditional Jewish view was that things get really bad, it's, the world is bad. Yahweh brings judgment and justice, and then everyone is resurrected to come before the throne of judgment. And so the idea that the Messiah would die and be raised ahead of everyone else, like that was a completely new idea. That plot twist. No one, yeah, total plot twist. And so that happens, and then the disciples and the apostles go back to the scriptures, and then you see, ah, you begin to see, read passages in a new light in that way. But before Jesus' resurrection, nobody had, had any categories categories for it. So it's obviously still a controversial claim. And I guess you could say, you know, there are actually many Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah. So they're all over the world. Um, they're not the majority, but they, they do exist. Um, so here's so there you go. So here's what this question here. One thing the plot line is: Who are these people? The, who are the seed of the servant who obey and listen to the servant? And what's their future? And how are they going to be sorted out from those among Israel who rejected the servant? How does that all play out? Uh, that's the final ten chapters or so of the book of Isaiah. So I say we uh, say a prayer of thanks for the cross, and then go eat some lunch. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, and 
for the great mystery, but also the great reality that it brings before us, this, this reality of our, of our own sin uh, that has corrupted our world, corrupted our lives, um, and that was played out in the story of Israel and in our lives, and we thank you for your grace, for this uh, mysterious revelation of your grace to uh, become the one who bears our sin and conquers it and brings light and life out the other side. And uh, we just thank you for uh, just the rich heritage uh, that comes to us in the scriptures. And we pray that uh, our devotion to you would be increased uh, because of what, what we learn here in Isaiah. So we thank you for grace and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah. Have you guys been minding the like 50 minute lunch break just so we can get a little more time? Okay, so 12.45, want to go for it? I guess it's 50 minutes. 12.45, I'll see you, see you here again. <laughs>